0: Um, we've been studying the book of Esther for a couple months now, but we have a number of first-time visitors this, uh, this Sunday, and I just want to tell you we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, so I want to take just a little bit of time with the review. Uh, I've been rushing through these the last couple weeks, but uh, I want to make sure that, uh, uh, that we're all up to speed. And feel free to go back and read the book. It's only 10 chapters, and so uh, uh, you can read it in an afternoon if you'd like. But the book of Esther is unique in the canon for a couple of reasons. It's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God. Uh, some say Song of Solomon doesn't either, but there's, there's a word in there that looks like the name of God to me. So uh, um, the book of Esther doesn't mention the name of God. It's set in a Persian capital. Um, most Bible books are set in Israel. You know, they're about Jewish people in, in, in Israel and around. And the main character is a woman. And that's very unique in the Bible. It's very unique in the literature of the ancient Near East, uh, The heroes of their stories typically were men. And so that's unique. But I love this book because of what it teaches about God's providential care for his people. Uh, We can see how God, Esther's sort of a model for how God works in history. And in the Bible, if we're going to place it in context, uh, most of you know by now probably that the Old Testament isn't written in chronological order. Uh, There's the law and then the the wisdom books and the prophets. If you were going to put it in chronological order, it would be near the end. And it would be... Between chapter six and seven of the book of Ezra, Ezra describes when the Israelites were allowed to return to to Jerusalem. And chapter six records the first return. Esther would occur in the gap between six and seven because chapter seven of Ezra describes the second return. And then Nehemiah describes the building of the wall. So Nehemiah would come chronologically after Esther. Um, And then this whole thing takes place in ancient Persia. And in world history class, you learn a lot of things about Persia that are actually emphasized in this Bible story. Uh, For example, the Persians, they took control of the Fertile Crescent in 539 BC when they conquered the Babylonians. This was one of the first civilizations in ancient history where the king was under the law. Uh, Most absolute monarchies in that day and even up into the Middle Ages, if the king changed his mind, then the law changed. But the Persians uh, had a system where once a decree was issued, Uh, The king couldn't just change it at his whim, and that's a key detail that that takes place in the book of Esther. They invented uh, the postal system. You ever heard the phrase, neither rain nor sleet nor gloom of night will stay these couriers from their appointed rounds? I'm not sure if I said it exactly right. Uh, It's in the New York City post office, but it wasn't written about American postal carriers. Uh, The Greek historian Herodotus wrote those words, and he was describing the Persian postal characters in ancient times. So they invented mail. and they built great roads, and they, they established a, a more well-developed bureaucracy. They called their provinces satrapies, and the governor of a province was known as a satrap. And so that's why you see that word a few times in the book. And, and their, their enhanced ability to get the word out it comes into play a couple different times. Um, so far in the book of Esther... This is what's occurred in the action. We've covered seven chapters so far, and I'll go quickly through what we've seen. In chapter one, Queen Vashti was defiant to the king, wouldn't appear when he summoned her, and so he banished her, decided to replace her with a new queen. In chapter two, the king King Xerxes became lonely, and so his advisor suggested a beauty contest, sort of slash tryout, to, uh, to choose a new queen, and Esther won this, wins this contest. Uh, in chapter three, Haman is promoted to be number two in command of all of uh, the empire of Persia, but his his celebration's kind of spoiled because this one guy Mordecai, the Jew, won't bow down and show him enough honor. So he decides he's so angry he decides not just to kill Mordecai but his whole tribe. And so now Haman's like this proto Hitler, determined to wipe out all the Jews. In chapter four, Mordecai convinces his cousin foster daughter Esther who's now in a position of honor in the palace, to use her influence to intercede for the Jews. It's a capital crime to show up to the king's palace or the king's throne without an invitation, and so it's a risky thing. She agrees to do it, says, if I perish, I perish, but she asks for a fast. It's not mentioned in the book of Esther, but we know from our reading of the Old Testament otherwise, anytime there's fasting, there's also what? Prayer. In fact, that's the purpose of fasting. And so the the book doesn't mention God by name, but it points to God a few different ways. And then chapter 5, Esther sets up this banquet and builds suspense by calling for a second banquet. And Haman makes his plans to... He's he's killing the Jews 11 months from now, but he can't wait to kill Mordecai. He wants to kill Mordecai tomorrow. And so he has a a gallows erected. In chapter 6... Mordecai is honored rather than executed. Uh, the, chapter 6 was last week a, an absurdly funny uh, account. Uh, in fact, you know, sometimes I'll say things after reading the scriptures where I'll, I'll, I'll be trying to be funny and I'm, and I'm looking for a laugh. Last week when I was just reading the, the verses, the congregation would just respond with laughter with, with, with laughter just based on the text itself. It's a very funny book, uh, and, and chapter six and seven are the funny parts uh, because of the dramatic irony that's there. Instead of being executed, Mordecai's honored by, and Haman's forced to be the one who honors him. So Haman's humiliated. And then in chapter seven at the second banquet, Esther exposes Haman as the guy who's the enemy of the Jews and her husband Xerxes orders his execution. So Haman's gone, uh, but the threat's not over for the Jews. And now that we've been in it a while, we've seen a number of recurring themes in the Book of Esther that show up over and over again. We see lots of things happening in pairs, pairs of banquets, uh, pairs of times that people are enraged. We see, uh, um, well, we'll see it again uh, in this week, uh, in this week's lesson. Uh, we see rage occurring over and over again. King Xerxes is angry at Vashti. Later, he's angry at, at Haman. Haman's angry at Mordecai a couple times. Uh, There's an emphasis on clothing. Uh, We're going to see Mordecai wearing royal robes again for the second time. Uh, We see a number of reversals of fortune. Haman goes from being the number two in command of all the Persian Empire to being hanged on a gallows. Uh, Mordecai goes from being this minor official to being number two. That's what we're going to read about today. Esther goes from being an orphan to concubine to queen. Um, And so we see a number of places where the tables are turned. Um, the story is so funny because of its dramatic irony. Anytime the characters, anytime the audience or the reader knows something that the characters don't know, uh, that's a funny scene uh, in a movie, in a play, in a in a story, and in, in 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 real life in this history. And then there's an emphasis on law and government. The way the Persians operated their their government, the way they administered it, the the laws that they adhered to. Uh, The writer of the book of Esther Esther is focused on those things and introduces us to those things. Then a lot of eating going on in Esther. There there are parties and banquets. In the first chapter, Esther throws two banquets. uh, And then there's fasting in the middle of that where they focus on God. And then this isn't something I noticed in the commentaries. This is one, one of the themes I noticed just as I was doing my reading. Lots of questionable advice in Esther. A number of times the king turns to his advisors and they tell him things that seem kind of dumb to me. Um, and he does them. And then Haman gets questionable advice from his wife and advisors, and, and he, does, he follows that advice. And then really the, the defining feature of Esther is all the things that look like coincidences, except I don't believe in coincidences. Uh, I call this God's providential care for his people. And so you know, how lucky for the Jews that Esther was so pretty. How lucky for the Jews that, that, that uh, King Xerxes couldn't sleep that night. How lucky for the Jews that when he had people read to him from the the annals uh, that they just chose to read that part about Mordecai being the hero. Well, I I don't think that's luck. I think that's God. We have really just three main characters left. Uh, Xerxes is the king. Mordecai is the Jewish guy from the tribe of Benjamin who's going to be elevated this week. And Esther is Mordecai's orphan cousin who's now the queen of Persia. Haman, uh, the guy who was the enemy of the Jews, is is now executed, so he's gone. But the threat's not over uh, for the Jews because his decree still stands. Remember, it's Persia, and so once the king signs a decree, it's the law of the land. So let's go back to the text. Chapter eight, we're gonna start with verse one. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Uh, When Haman was condemned as a traitor, and because of that, his property didn't go to his family, it reverted to the crown. And that's, that's something fairly common in Middle Ages. You may have heard stories about that occurring in England. Both Herodotus and Josephus confirm that this was the law of the land in Persia. If you were condemned as a traitor, then the king took your, took your property. It's one of the reasons in the Middle Ages that treason was used as sort of a political tool. When when the king wanted to, to gain some property, he would just accuse the guy of treason, and he'd get the enemy out of the way and get his property in the bargain. When uh, It says here that Esther told how Mordecai was related to her. It's the first time she openly mentions their relationship, and of course now... That she openly mentions their relationship, you know, she mentioned it last week. <clears throat> uh, when uh, that she was Jewish and that Haman was coming after her people, <clears throat> she openly uh, she, what had been a secret before, she openly declares, "I'm I'm related to Mordecai. I'm Jewish too." Now the tables have been turned. Remember, in Haman's decree. He wanted to not only kill the Jews, but what was he going to do with their property? He was going to plunder it. He was going to take their property for himself. So his plan was to take property from the Jewish people. And what's happened instead now? He's dead, and his property has reverted to Jewish hands. The property goes to Esther. His position went to Mordecai. But what's Esther need with a bunch of property? She got Mordecai to manage it for her. So now Mordecai is now in charge of everything that used to be in Haman's care. This signet ring, I think we have a picture of it. This was a very common thing in the ancient Near East. It was sort of like a stamp with the king's signature. Um, And it was a little bit like a blank check or a blank decree if you had the king's signet ring, you could write whatever you wanted, put the signet ring stamp at the bottom of it, and now this is the king's order. And it looks to us on first reading like King Xerxes is a little bit loose with passing that thing around. First he gives it to Haman, and Haman can do whatever he wants, and now he gives it to Mordecai, and Mordecai can do whatever he wants. And that seems like a better choice. You know, Haman made bad decisions and was an enemy of the Jews, and giving it to to Mordecai seems less risky. And you might think, well, maybe he ought to keep that ring for himself and do his own governing and not let other people govern for him. But remember, the government of Persia wouldn't have operated like the government of the United States. They would have worshipped their king as borderline divine like the pharaoh in Egypt. And it was very common in Egypt and Persia and, and Babylon for the king to appoint somebody to be number two, second in command to only the king, but really the de facto operator of the government. Because the king, he's busy being king, busy being borderline divine, got lots of concubines. He's got lots of stuff to do besides being in the nitty gritty of the daily governing of the the. the the land. In fact, they would have considered it kind of unseemly for the king to be involved in the nuts and bolts operation. So that's what the the title was called Grand Vizier. Uh, Joseph was that in Egypt, maybe you recall from the book of Genesis. And so Haman was that. It it would be comparable to say the president's chief of staff if our president was more of a do-nothing president and if we respected the president more and i'm not i'm not making any comment on our current president we just don't, we don't respect the office of president like persians would have respected the office of king or like egyptians would have respected the office of 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 pharaoh and so the grand vizier the number 2 guy would have been actual the the actual leader of the government answerable only to the king <clears throat> let's go back to verse 3 esther again pleaded with the king the earlier decree still in effect remember Falling at his feet and weeping, she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. Uh, Remember I said there were pairs in Esther? This is the second time now Esther has gone to the king without an invitation. And in Persia, that's a capital crime. But both times the king extends the scepter and invites her to come. If he'd said, hey, what are you doing here? That's a death penalty crime. It seems harsh. And we see Esther, we see Xerxes being nice to Esther a couple different times, and you might get the false impression from reading this text that he was a nice guy. But history records that he was not. Uh, he was a ruthless leader, he was a bit of a womanizer. He was um, uh, very, if, if you want to see Xerxes the way his, history sees him, uh, watch the movie 300. Uh, I'm not really recommending the movie, uh, but if you watch it, uh, You'll see, maybe some of you have seen it already. If you watch it, you'll see Xerxes the way that he's portrayed in history by you know, everywhere else except in the Bible, and that is he's, an, he's a horrible guy. Uh, just a, a, a ruthless killer, um, and not willing for anything to stand in his way. Uh, yet, and, and here, he comes off as rather kind and gentle, even generous with Esther. And to me, that's a picture of God's, God's hand at work. The influence he gave Esther over this guy who, who was, was quite harsh in his reign. <clears throat> Verse 5. Notice how smooth Esther is, how how humbly she solicits the king's help. Verse 5: If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. Notice how she tactfully avoids blaming the king for his role in all this. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my own family? Here now Esther's clearly identified with the Jewish people. And notice how conditional her request is. She puts four conditions. If, he, if it pleases the king, if he regards me with favor, if he thinks it's the right thing to do, if he's pleased with me. She kind of said that one twice, didn't she? Then overrule Haman's plot. So she wants Haman's plot to be overruled, but only if the king thinks it's a good idea and only if you like me and all that stuff. Verse 7. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew. Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as it seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. should have mentioned this last week when we saw Mordecai get hanged, but there's going to be hanging uh, this week too. Persian hanging isn't like American hanging. It's not like lynching or like in the Old West where they string the the cow rustler up to the nearest tree. Um, Hanging wasn't a method. It was actually closer to crucifixion than it was to to our our method of hanging. It wasn't a method of execution. It was more a method of displaying the dead body after the guy was already killed. Uh, Impaling would be a better word really uh, for what they did. They just put a guy up on a stick or a pole and kind of display the corpse as a warning to other people, don't, don't do what he did. And that's, that's what it was used for. And when the Romans invented crucifixion, they were really just, from their perspective, improving on that method of execution and making it more horrible. So the guy would take a real long time to die in a public way and then be left up, you know, up on, on, the, on the, the pole so that people could see, you, know, you don't want to try this. So Xerxes gives Mordecai a blank check to deal with the problem but notice he says you can't over undo what he did so the blank check isn't to revoke Haman's decree but to do, do whatever you can figure out to supersede Haman's decree let's see I did it verse 9 at once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month the month of Sivan they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. This is just how Haman's decree was put out. Mordecai uses the same bureaucracy to put out his, his decree. And, and this is a detail that would be easy to overlook, but I noticed this this week. This decree of Mordecai was exactly 70 days... After Haman's decree to destroy all the Jews. Now, what's the significance of that? Um, I believe, and this is an original with me, I read it this week, that this is a reference to the 70 years of exile. Uh, maybe you recall that, that Jeremiah prophesied that when Israel was taken into captivity, seven year, 70 years later, they would be allowed to return. And so Haman orders their destruction, and 70 days later, Mordecai issues an alternate decree. Let's take a look at that prophecy from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29.10. This is what the Lord says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. Daniel noticed the same thing in Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent. Let's take a look at that before we read on. Is that confusing? It, um, It says here Darius son of Xerxes. I thought Xerxes was the son of Darius and yet I think they're both true. I think Xerxes, the guy in this story, Esther, is the grandson, was named for his grandfather. Xerxes is the dad, has a son named Darius, who has a son named Xerxes, which is not uncommon even today, right? So, he's a Mede by descent. He was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign. I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So. The Jewish people were well acquainted with 70 as a big number in their exile. Let's go back to Esther, verse 10. Mordecai rode in the name of King Xerxes, sealed by the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king, kind of like a Persian Pony Express. Earlier, Mordecai was king for a day, but now he's got some real power and some real authority. And not only that, but he's got some the respect that Haman craved and couldn't get. And the Jews now have nine months to prepare for this big day of battle where they're going to try to overturn the, the attack on them. Verse 11, the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. Notice the Jews have the right to plunder the property of their enemies, but we're gonna see later that they don't exercise that right. Um, Why is it that they were given the right? This decree is the exact reverse of Haman's decree, the one we read about a couple chapters ago. And notice the particular attention to the dates when this happened. These are not once upon a time stories. These are actual events at an actual time in history, and we know when when they occurred. Verse 13, a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. The edict is going to be carried out in two locations, the capital city of Susa and also in the provinces. they're going to spend two days at it in Susa, but only one day in the provinces. Verse 17, in every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many of the other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. This strikes me as kind of an interesting evangelistic tool. Um, People converted to Judaism because they were afraid. And now, I'd like to explain that a little bit. This word fear doesn't exactly mean what our word fear means. It's an odd awareness of the fact that the Jews had favored status. And, and maybe you recall hearing me say this before, but in the ancient Near East, ethnic struggles and even battles between nations were seen as a contest between my God and your God. And so if I win, it's not because I'm a better fighter, it's because my God's better. And if I lose, it's because my God's weaker and your God's better. And so uh, the... Uh, religiously speaking, the people of the ancient Near East were fair-weather fans. And if they see your god winning, they're going to jump on the bandwagon and say, well, that's the, that's the god that's most powerful now. I'm going for that guy. And yet while the Jews are down, they, they, they ditch the, the god of Jews and start worshiping Marduk or Baal or whoever. And so they would have seen the fact that the Jews were enjoying favored status as a sign that their god's the winner, and I'm, I'm jumping on the winning team. Okay, let's go on to Chapter 9. And we'll go quickly through this part. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. When did this happen? It was March 4 of 473 B.C., a, a, a specific time and place in history. Verse 2, no one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. Notice how dramatically Mordecai has ascended to power. He went from being this minor official around the palace to now he's, the, he's, he's number two. And not only does he have the power and the position, but he seems to have the respect uh, that, that Haman never could get. Verse 5. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what, what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphin, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmeshta, Eressai, Eridai, and Vesetha. Do you think uh, Eresai and Eridai might have been twins because they have like rhyming names? These were the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. So 500 guys in Susa are killed along with the ten sons of Haman. Remember how proud he was of his sons um, a couple chapters ago. Now they're gone. Verse 10, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. This is the first time this is mentioned. It's going to be mentioned again. But the number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. Verse 12, the king said to Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will be granted. He's so solicitous to his wife, you get the false impression he might be a nice guy, but he's not. Verse 13, if it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, second day of killing, and let Haman's 10 sons be hanged on gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa and they hanged the 10 sons of Haman. Now, weren't they already dead? So why hang the guys if they're already dead? This is just a clear display and the message is don't mess with the Jews. That's That's the point. You put them up there to show what happens to the people who are the enemies of the Jews. Verse 15, this is the second day in Susa. Um, this is off the subject, but as I read the, the bloody parts of the end of this chapter, it reminds me of a kind of a personal story. Um, I, I have a good bit of Bible reading sometimes assigned to me in class, and so Jean S- and I did something last past semester that I thought was, it was you know, she always feels like she doesn't get as much Bible reading done as she'd like to, so I said, would you like to read the Bible to me, my assignments, as I'm as I'm driving and so you can read them too and that way it could be kind of multitasking and I could get more reading done so she offered to do that which I thought was a a very generous thing but um, Gina used to teach four-year-olds and so she would read like in a preschool teacher voice and I I thought it was very almost comical when she'd read the more horrible parts uh, in her four-year-old in her preschool teacher voice like like chapter like verse 15 The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. And so that's how she would have read it to me, and I I found a couple verses uh, in here that are kind of like that. So the second day of killing in Susa gets 300 guys, so they kill 500 on day one and 300 on day two. So the death toll in Susa is 800, but that that pales in comparison to the provinces. Uh, Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. Verse 16. They killed 75,000 of them but did not lay hands on the plunderers. The third mention of that. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. So they had one day of killing, in the provinces took down 75,000. They had two days of killing in Susa, the capital, and, and killed 800. Um, And what's the significance of this thing where they didn't take the plunder? It's mentioned eight or three different times. They had the right to, according to the decree, but did not take the plunder. In the Jewish system, this would have proved that their attack was self-defense, not imperialism, not the typical ancient Near East way of trying to attack people so they could get their stuff. Uh, In fact, according to the ancient Jewish standards of a holy war, taking the plunder would have been forbidden. And so that's why the writer of Esther emphasizes they were fighting to protect themselves not to, get the, not to get better stuff. Now, it's sort of a bloody chapter here at the end and so I struggled to find 2,500 years later what's the application for you and me. And, and I had a couple of missteps along the way. I, I don't think the application for you and me is fight them there so we don't have to fight them here that might apply to another setting, another context, but I don't think that's what Esther's teaching me today. The best defense is a good offense. That's true in college football, um, but it's not it, – I don't think that's what the message is for you and me today. I don't think we're supposed to do – I don't think I read the book of Esther and, 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 and our, our appropriate response to that is to plan a preemptive strike on our enemies. I don't think that's what, what we're supposed to do. What about the violence, though? now it's time to be done i could do a whole message on this and i'm thinking about maybe doing a message on this between now and the election because something changed when jesus came god was very protective of his nation in the old testament because they were the conduit through who the savior would come but when jesus came he came into a world where the jews were not free and they were ruled by people who were not good uh, the Romans and, and, and in earthly political terms, Jesus didn't lift a finger to help them. And yet he proclaimed my kingdom is here. Let's take a look well, we, in the new Testament reading. James and John want to call down fire from heaven on the unbelievers. And Jesus said, no, that's not the way we do things now. Um, take a look at John 1836. I'll read it to you. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. So, in the, in the book of Esther, the, the Jews did fight. But when Jesus comes, he says, no, we're not going to fight here. Um, my kingdom's different than what you guys recognize as a kingdom. Uh, that might be a whole message, but uh, let's skip on to the real application. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's all over scripture. It's impossible to escape it in the Old Testament the New Testament, and it's clearly visible here in Esther. Sometimes we get an opportunity to actively participate in our own deliverance. Now, I'm not talking about salvation. There's nothing I can do to make myself more worthy of salvation. But sometimes God gives me an opportunity to participate um, in, in my own deliverance from, you know, whatever used to hold me. Um, and the Jews here get a chance to participate in their own deliverance. And then here's the most important point to me. The will of God will be done. God has declared, God has decreed that Jesus will come again. I believe that you believe that, but what if you don't believe that? Does that mean he's not gonna come? No, he's coming. God's will will be done. And so the questions for me are, how can I avoid opposing God's purposes? Become, placing myself in a position where I'm an enemy of God, obviously that's not a good place to be. The best question, the follow-up question is, how can I be used by God? If God's gonna accomplish his purposes, then it seems like the best place for me to be is a tool in his hands helping to accomplish those purposes let's pray (coughs) lord we love you and lord we thank you for your protection and your provision for your people lord we claim those promises for us and we thank you for your your sovereign care lord i thank you for uh, displaying your power to us this week and lord i thank you for uh for preserving us although many of us got a scare all of us survived and most of us didn't lose much stuff And, Lord, I thank you for that. And, Lord, I ask that you would help us to learn from this and help us to live our lives in a way that would bring honor to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.